Hey Trojan fans, it's time to get into the huddle with the Peristyle Podcast. The Peristyle Podcast is your weekly ticket to USC football and recruiting news. Don't forget, you can download the podcast 24-7 at our website, peristylepodcast.com. And now, here's the host of the Peristyle Podcast, uscfootball.com publisher, Ryan Abraham. Hello, Trojan fans. Welcome to the Peristyle Podcast on a Wednesday. Today we're going to talk some USC football with Dan Weber, beat writer and columnist for uscfootball.com. If you have any questions for us on the podcast, you can send us an email, podcast at uscfootball.com, or give us a call. 424-254-9141 is the number. You can text us or leave a brief voicemail on that number. That's 424-254-9141. Um, you can find us on iTunes, iTunes.com slash Peristyle Podcast. We're on Audio Boom, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn Radio, uh, Google Play. We're all over the place. And if there's some place where you don't see the Peristyle Podcast, let me know. Email me, podcast at uscfootball.com, and I will definitely make sure we get put up there. Uh, it's going to be our 10th season covering USC football, and this is kind of a, a little bit of a lull right now. The offseason graduations happened. Uh, some people taking some vacations now, Dan, and then they'll start coming back. Looks like June, things will start really heating up around campus. So, you know, a couple weeks of not too much on the team side going on, I think. Yeah. Uh, I'm thinking we've had, you know, years where maybe a little bit more got going before June, but, uh, but I think practice, because it's going to start earlier in July and season is about as early as you can get with, uh, September 2nd you know, opening game, uh, that it's going to be maybe a little more concentrated once they get, once they get into it. But, uh, yeah, not quite maybe as, uh, as spread out through the summer as, as we've been accustomed to. The, uh, there's, there's been some changes like you, you alluded to. And, um, I think we'll just probably jump into, we have questions kind of all across the board, Dan. And, uh, one of the questions is about kind of the changes with fall camp. Uh, this is Jared, uh, from Utes country. So somewhere in Utah, the mountain area. He said, I remember hearing somewhere, uh, with two a days no longer a thing in college football, this might push back USC's fall camp start date to early, uh, July. Have you heard any rumblings from the coaching staff that they're going to start fall camp in late July? And if so, what dates are they thinking of starting? Thanks in advance. He must have meant, uh, early, late July in the earlier part. Late of the July, yeah, right. Yeah. But that's Jerry. Yeah, I don't think there's any question they're going to start in July. And uh, I think one of the issues now, they have to move. <laughs> the Pac-12 media days, I think, were scheduled for like July 26th and 27th. And my understanding is that's about when USC and a whole lot of other programs are going to start. So I'm I'm hearing that if the Pac-12 media days are on July 26th and 27th, there may be uh, uh, teams that, that won't be there. Uh, so you would think they'd be able to work this out. We haven't heard any resolution yet, but uh, but I'm pretty sure USC probably going to be practicing by then. So this is going to be, move, you know, obviously they're never going to go up as early as, as the uh, SEC, for example, we just keep moving them earlier and earlier and earlier. I mean, I think they're liable to be Fourth of July weekend pretty soon uh, in the SEC, but they're going to be earlier. And uh, uh, 
I think your your information is correct. Uh, we haven't still gotten the official word, but the unofficial word is uh, that they're moving to something around July 26, 27th for a start of, uh, of uh, August practice. So August practice in July. Yeah, August practice in July. We still don't know. Uh, hasn't been announced. We do know. Um, yeah, I think you're right. It was uh, July 26th and 27th. I believe is what they said for Pac-12 Media Day. Um, I don't think I got an email from the Pac-12, but I was just I was hearing that through other sources and stuff. But that seems like right. Yeah, I don't know that they ever made it absolutely, you know, public, and so everybody's kind of gone radio silent right now. <laughs> so, uh, you know, uh, and and you know, if you're going to book the the whole, uh, I don't even know where they were going this year. That's right. We. I think they've been to about just about every movie, movie studio. I saw Hollywood uh, and Highland. I thought that's what they were going to do. So that's up where like, they were going to go back there again. Yeah, where like okay. the Chinese theater is and stuff. Um, which I love. I like taking well, uh, people. Come that's visit where they were last year. I mean, so so they could end up going back there, which made sense. Uh, but um, uh, it may not be all that easy to switch switch dates. Uh, you know, just a few months out for a place like that yeah well we'll have to see uh thanks for that question let's see we're gonna go to ron he said this year we were fortunate to have jay Tefelli and marlin tui pelotu join the defense next year's class there's commitments from a couple defensive tackles as well i'm not seeing similar recruiting emphasis at the defensive end position someone has to rush off the edge and it has to be either a linebacker or a defensive end uh do do you, the recent recruits, uh, I'm not sure what he means here, signal that, do you see the recent recruits as being a signal that Clancy Pendergast will be switching to a 3-4 defense and rushing three defensive tackles, or is it just picking the best available players who happen to all play the same position? Thanks for all the excellent work, Ron in Northern Virginia. Yeah, I think, they think, uh, Tufele might be able to, or Tufele might be able to, move out if you really wanted him to. I mean, he's just he really, I mean, he got some, you know, pass rushing skills and things that uh, he and, and Tui Pelotu are not the same guy, even though their, you know, dimensions are 6'3 and 305 or whatever. Uh, uh, and kind of play, you know, play different positions. Uh, but uh, but you're right. If you're only playing two, two uh, you know, defensive linemen, they got a lot of bodies uh, to take care of of those two uh, of those two positions. I, I think you know we're not sure exactly where some of these li- you know some of the linebackers are going to end up, and I, I just think you know I think they've decided get the best players they can get, and then you know work the defense around them, and uh, it just they're getting some you know pretty quality players, uh, and so. So I, I wouldn't read too much into they recruited this guy or these three guys. Therefore, this is how the defense is going to change. Uh, I, I don't, I don't think that's the case. I think, you know, the defense will change according to the, you know, getting the best 11 guys on the, you know, which is what Clancy said, you know, get the best 11 on the field and get them into, uh, the kind of defense that works best for them against the people they're playing. I mean, I, I like it. You know, it's kind of the Bill Belichick approach where you really don't know 
how they're going to play you on defense from one week to the next because he basically looks at what you do. He looks at who he's got to play defense, and then he puts them in positions and uh, asks them to do things that they do the best that they think you're going to, you know, have trouble handling. And, uh, and, and it's not the same every week. And, uh, I think USC is moving more in that direction. So I, I wouldn't get, you know, locked into this guy's at this position. Therefore, that means they're going to, you know, line up this way. Uh, I think they're kind of past that. And, you know, and good for them. I, I, I think that's really, you know, that's the way to go. Yeah, I think so. It's not like, um, it, don't think of it as there's a, board on the wall of positions that are etched in stone and you need this guy someone in this position it's more about oh you got these three guys that maybe all play the same position but they're the best three in that area we're going to spread things around uh you know we've seen them announce guys that were starting the game and they wouldn't even play at all it just depends you know whoever they feel comfortable with and if there's a bunch more big defensive linemen then that's what it'll feature uh the last couple years you've seen you know really two down linemen or so that'll probably change going forward. But yeah, I, I agree with you. I think it's more, you know, it's going to be in flux. It's going to change. Um, it's not, this is the system you have to fit people into, you know, square peg round hole kind of thing. It's not going to be like that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think maybe, uh, we get at times too locked into positions and depth charts and things like that. And I don't think the coaches see it that way as much anymore. I mean, you have to list guys at positions and all that kind of thing, but, uh, but I think the, the coaches are, are much more fluid about how this all works than, than maybe we even, you know, really realize because they're not, they're not talking to you about it. And, uh, you know, uh, they, I mean, even the players, I don't think are, are totally cognizant of, 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 of what's behind the way the coaches are using using people, especially I think Clancy's, you know, a good example of he's gonna, you know, fit guys to to what they do best and not worry all that much about what name you're gonna put on the position. Yeah, it's funny when people are like, well that guy's the backup center. If if this guy goes down, he's coming in the game. It's like, no, it doesn't always work that way. So yeah, if they feel yeah, comfortable, yeah. yeah. If they don't trust the backup center, um uh, he's listed as the backup center and then you know, they move a left guard over to center or whatever, you know, it, they, it's just, it's in flux. It's in, it's not, you know, it's, it's not like this hard structured thing all the time. It's moves and it can change and it can develop and adapt. And that, that's a good thing because that means you've got, you know, players with the talent. I mean, they really do talk multi-positional players now. I mean, and the players themselves have taken to that because they know at that, at the next level, you know, if you can play two or three spots, you have got a way better chance of, uh, of sticking. And, uh, I think that's, uh, that's become a selling point. I think USC's done a, a pretty good job. And first it was out of necessity because of the scholarship limitations and what have you. But I think it's just sort of, you know, kind of evolved where guys, uh, uh, and you can look at this year's team, a lot of, a lot of multi-positional guys and guys who played here and then play there and and then move back somewhere else and uh, I wouldn't you know I wouldn't be surprised if if that's just the way it keeps going. Let's go to Paul. He says hello, Dan. First of all, I just passed my one year anniversary of listening to your podcast, and I just want to take this time to thank 
you, Ryan, and Dan for allowing me to have my Trojan fix year-round. Well, thanks. I'm glad you've been listening for a year. We're on our 10th season, though, bro. So where were you those first nine? I said, I've, <laughs> I have two coaching-related questions for Dan. Looking back on last year, I thought that one of the more remarkable storylines was the vast improvement of the defensive line over the course of the year. Dan, how much of this improvement can you attribute to first-year coach Kenichi Udeze, or would you attribute the improvement to players primarily getting comfortable in Clancy Pendergast system? I'd love to hear your thoughts. Boy, I don't think you can separate those two. I think they go together. I think it's, uh, you know, Kenichi uh, learning exactly how everything works with, with Clancy. I think, uh, you know, I think Kenichi had a, had a good, you know, good bit of learning curve. It was his first, you know, full year to do that. And he, he was a demanding taskmaster and he was a real technique guy and a real, you know, hand placement guy and all those, those things. And I think, uh, it was a change, uh, for these players. So I think some of it was the players adjusting to Kenichi, Kenichi adjusting to the players and the players kind of, uh, starting to, really get what it is that, that Clancy wanted them to do. I think, I don't think you can ever kind of separate those out where you, you know, you can isolate and say it was this or it was that. I don't think it happens unless it all happens together. So, uh, I, I think it was just a matter of everybody kind of figuring out where, how do I work in this, you know, in this defense and exactly what do I have to be able to do technique-wise? How, you know, how exactly do I have to get it right? And, uh, and it was, uh, it was kind of a learning experience for him. Uh, some of the, you know, the fourth-year guys had, you know, had played under, under Clancy, but, uh, but it was a learn, and, you know, Stevie was a brand, you know, Tui Kalabati was a brand new, you know, Trojan, and it took, took him a while, took everybody a while, uh, so, so I think if your two questions, I think, go together and, and are not able to be separated, the answers. Uh, well, actually, that was I think that was just the first question. The second one oh, okay. uh, yeah, <laughs> was Clay Helton has done many things right in his first year, but what are the areas that he needs to improve on? What do you see as his weaknesses? Again, I would love to hear your thoughts. Thanks, Paul and Santa Clarita. I guess I'd like to see real clarity and how how they run the football when they really have to run the football. I just think, and some of that may have been just some of the, maybe uh, a combination of the physical abilities of the offensive linemen they had and the physical limitations of the offensive linemen they had. But I, I, I'd like to see that ability, you know, where you have a sense of, you know, they're not going to, you know, they're not going to whiff They're in on that block. They're at the point of attack. They're going to, you know, get the execution at the point of attack. So uh, that might be one thing. Uh, I thought his game management, you know, got to be really good. I know it's easy to, you know, point out, at, you know, this or that, but uh, I thought that was an area of, of extreme improvement over the year. I mean, the Rose Bowl, uh, you just can't do it any better than they did, you know, with the comeback in the sense of whatever we have to do, we're, we're prepared to do it. I think, I think it took a while. So 
that sense of, yeah, we've done this. We know how to do this. We're good to go here. Uh, I really like that. I mean, it was, that's a difference that, that, that you see with, uh, with Clay. Uh, as far as, uh, things he really needs to work on. Uh, hmm. That's a, that's a really good question. Uh, other than the run game, eh, bum, bum, bum. I'm not, uh, I don't, you know, giving them, you know, that good year uh, to see where we are. I mean, I think there wasn't a lot of clarity at the beginning of the year in terms of, uh, you know, how, how, how was Max Brown at the speed that he played the game how was he going to be able to get things done against really good, uh, you know, athletic defensive teams with the people he was playing with? I don't think they understood that uh, at the start of the year. I don't think they understood how seriously they probably weren't going to be able to, to be very competitive with uh, Stanford and Alabama, uh, the way they were going at things uh, offensively. And, you know, that's the head coach's job. And and you could focus on that except for the fact that they did figure it out. And, and you know, they understood, you know, that what they had to get right and how they had to do it. And and clearly they they were able to do that uh, you know, as the season went on. So so I'm probably not gonna, you know, come down too hard on on clay in terms of uh, you know, areas where uh, you know where he uh, where he came up short. You know, does he make the guys afraid of him? You know, I know other people might look at you know this guy or that guy in college football and say, well, they're really afraid of him, and you know, they're not afraid of of Clay in that same way. Uh, but and 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 we don't get to see like the really tough Clay. I mean, he he's not trying to show you that I'm I'm the tough guy. Uh, I do think that side exists and, and we just don't see it. Uh, but, uh, but I, I mean, I guess somebody could focus on that and say, well, we need to see somebody who goes out there and really kicks butt and all that kind of thing. And, and, and yeah, I don't see that exactly, but I could see how somebody might, might go there. Um, all right, let's move on. Tarek had a question, Dan. He said, where do you project Kenny Bigelow playing on the defensive line? Speaking of defensive linemen, we were talking about before. That's a good question. Uh, I could see him playing, you know, in a three different spots, and uh, um, that's going to be a, a, something to, you know, I, I don't know that we want to project that because with his physique, I think he'd become big enough to play nose. Uh, more, you know, dire- directly the, you know, uh, a tackle look right now, but I think he could play a little wider as well. Uh, I'll be interested. I don't, I don't think it's been, you know, really completely well defined as to exactly, uh, you know, how Kenny gets on the field. I think he will. I just don't think we know. And who knows? That may, you know, if he really gives them somebody who has the ability to play the way they always had hoped Kenny would be able to play, uh, it might 
might change what you know some of what they do defensively. You know, they may you know decide that in situations where they maybe in, in the past would have just played two uh, down linemen, maybe they'll play three. Um, but uh, but yeah, I I just don't think you know we're I don't think we know. I, I just don't think we know. We haven't seen Kenny with the physique he's got now and the experience he's got now. We haven't seen that that Kenny really, you know, play for USC. So it's going to be kind of a new experience, uh, you know, watching watching where he ends up. Yeah, that's a wild card. You just don't know. I mean, you didn't know how important Stevie Tuikolavato was going to be. You thought like there were some good things there. You think there could be some good things with Kenny Bigelow, but that's going to be a wait and see thing. Like he could come in there and be uh, an absolute stud, or he could, you know be kind of like what we've seen throughout his career, just not really be a contributing factor. So, yeah, former five-star, Dan, people want to see that, you know, five-stars right. produce, and we just haven't seen him produce yet. And, yeah, and he's the guy, you know, when he gets off the bus, you think, oh, this guy's going right to the NFL. I mean, he's got that look about him. I mean, he always looked like a five-star. Um, uh, hasn't had much good luck in, in a lot of different ways, you know, injuries on top of everything else. Uh, but, uh, you know, he didn't have enough experience. That high school program really didn't play many games at all. And so, you know, he was, uh, as talented as he was, he was behind, uh, you know, when he got here. He's, he's been around the program now, so that's not a problem. He's had enough experience, even though it's coming, you know, fits and starts and around injuries. Uh, but, uh, uh, this one, you just have to let it play out. Those are the, the kinds of answers. They're not exactly answers, but they're not, that's because there is no answer yet. Kenny is going to be the one that provides that answer. And he, it's going to happen as he, as he does it, as he plays it out. It's going to play out before us and, and we'll see. Uh, but he, I don't think he's going to be limited and I don't think, you know, some of the issues that have you know bothered him in the past are going to still bother him, but uh, a lot of guys that look like they can play up there, and uh, it'll be interesting to see again how that plays out. Can they, you know, play more rotations and and do more things as a result of that? Uh, I think so. Uh, so do they have more guys on the field, uh, more guys you know staying fresh? Uh, again, a lot of that is up to. Can you uh, execute? Is your technique good enough and consistent enough? And are you in the playbook enough to be exactly right enough for Clancy to trust you and uh, and Kenichi to trust you? And that's uh, that's, that's going to be a big part of, of, of for all those defensive linemen is just earn the coach's trust. And where you know, I think a lot of them could get on the field if they do that. We had a question from SC Made. He says, thanks to you and your team for all the great work you put into USC football. Two questions for Dan. Uh, first, can Dan promise to press Larry Scott at Pac-12 Media Days on how the conference is getting crushed from, uh, from a revenue amount compared to every other conference and how he expects them to stay competitive? And he put in all caps, we all know his TV plan has been a nightmare. Yeah, we know... A lot more of the specifics. I mean, for years we couldn't get the the number of uh, households that the Pac-12 was in and all that kind of thing. 
I mean, we know so much now about the SEC and the Big Ten that uh, uh, we finally have really good numbers on the Pac-12. And uh, there will still be pie-in-the-sky answers about, well, we own all of our rights. You know, we own all the third-tier rights, and, you know, we're not having to, you know, split them up with anybody. Uh, but to this point, that's been worth basically nothing. Uh, you know, and I know the way the world of sports broadcasting is going, it's going more to, you know, people doing it that way. And, and, and it's not all TV and it's not all cable and it's not all over the air. Uh, but whether the Pac-12 ever be able to monetize that i mean you know you feel like when you hear some of the stuff that they tell you that you know you're you're watching the wizard of oz and you pull you want to pull the curtain back and you know (laughs) and and there's nobody there that you know there's nothing there uh it's been but you know he can look at us and say well so what i just got a big long uh contract extension from the president at well over four million dollars a year so who's the you know what do i care you know i mean now they've just let the uh well she resigned the uh really highly paid president of the pac-12 network is finished in june no sign of who's coming in uh they've hired her to to be a consultant for the network. So, you know, so I don't know. Uh, but, yeah, we'll try. I always get as close to Larry as you can possibly get. And, <laughs> and we ask those questions. And I know he he can't be, you know, very, uh, very pleased if, if he reads any of our stuff. Uh, and basically, to this point, you know, for a while, he he was benefiting from the fact that they got lucky and they were the first one, the Pac-12 was the first one that got to renegotiate their contract. And they rene- renegotiated a number that was way higher than, than the horrible deal that they had previously. But, you know, they've basically been surpassed by everybody now, even, you know, the Big 12, which, you know, we're lucky they got 10 teams and, you know, they're in like almost no big cities and, and, and still they've gone past, uh, you know, or the ACC, which doesn't even have a network yet. They're going to get one, but, um, uh, and they're going with, they're partnering with ESPN. So the other major conferences who've done this have all partnered with either ESPN or Fox. And, um, you know, Pac-12 has gone it alone and, you know, while it's getting, you know, into about oh, something like 15 million homes. Uh, you know, the Big Ten and the SEC are in like 65 to 70 million homes. And uh, they also get more money per home. Yeah, the, so, the valuation of, they did a valuation oh, of the like yeah. SEC network. I think it was $4.5 billion and the Pac-12 yep. was like 300 million. I mean, it was something, it, it was around there, like some ridiculous. You no, know, it's exactly 10 right times like more. 15 yeah. times as much. Yeah. Uh, just, yeah, and more yeah, than an order of magnitude. Will, if, if you're the guy running the Pac-12 and the networks, 
you will be paid more than the guy running the SEC, although and the Big Ten, although they're making so much money on this latest contract in the Big Ten, which will also is the second negotiation since the Pac-12, and they'll get another negotiation for a third renegotiation before the Pac-12 ever gets their second. And uh, Jim Delaney, the commissioner of the Pac- uh, Big Ten, <laughs> has brought in so much money for the Big Ten that uh, they, uh, they're going to give him a $20 million bonus. So Larry won't be the number one uh, <laughs> you know, paid, paid commissioner because the Big Ten can't believe how much money they're making. I, I think it because I'm trying to think. We were comparing Rutgers and Illinois are going to make just an unbelievable more. They will make unbelievably more money. Uh, between now and the end of the contract, then, uh, then USC will make. I mean, uh, Rutgers, Illinois are getting just tons more money than USC is getting. And something has to change. That yeah. cannot be allowed, uh, to continue. It can't. And, and I, I, if I were Oregon State and Washington State, you would have to ask yourself, how much longer is USC going to allow Oregon State and Washington State to make the same money uh, from TV. Uh, it would be a question I'd be asking if, if I were them. And it's a question USC ought to be asking. You know, I mean, we all talk about getting the Pac-12 to monetize its, uh, you know, TV deals. Maybe you finally get to the point where you say USC had better start figuring out ways to monetize USC's deal, um, and that's going to happen. I mean, it, it's just it, it is not going to go in perpetuity when there are there there are fewer and fewer resources and fewer and lesser and less less and less money to be parceled out. And yet, for the teams at the top and the teams that really do make money for these networks, uh, that money is there. But if you're willing to share it with all these teams who don't make any money for the networks, um, I, I just don't see that being a viable, you know, well into the, say, the, you know, 2024, 2025 season when the USC gets renegotiated. I don't see that as a viable model that you're going to share your money equally with everybody else. I just, it just doesn't make any sense. The, uh, that's a good segue. SC Mate has another question, but I want to jump to Tarek because he wants to know, uh, after what you just said, what would USC have to do to be independent in football? Well, it would be interesting. I mean, I've always wondered, is there a way to approach someone like, say, Notre Dame, uh, like Notre Dame has done, and you go to an NBC and you say, instead of just having Notre Dame exclusively what if you had a second team exclusively uh so that you had a game every week you could alternate because they can only do the notre dame home games uh and what if you had a second team or a team that you could play at early after the early saturday game and a late saturday game or whatever uh and what if usc was that other team and what if usc followed the notre dame model which is 
you affiliate with another with a conference for all your other sports and you agree to play five five games a year in that conference, which is what Notre Dame has done with the Atlantic Coast. So they're not a full-fledged member in football, but because they give all those schools a game every so many years, the Wake Forest or Florida State or whoever, they want they like the idea of playing Notre Dame. And Notre Dame has a place for, you know, basketball and and uh, softball and track and field and all that. Could USC pull that off? I think they'd have a chance if you, and even doing it with the Pac-12. I mean, how much do Pac-12 schools want to play USC, to want to come into Los Angeles and recruit? Could USC readjust and say, you know, we're going to maybe follow the Notre Dame model where we're in the Pac-12 for all these other sports, and in football, we're half in. Um and, and and whether you know and and there's the whole deal of USC has signed away its TV rights until 2024 25. Uh, could could there be some kind of an arrangement made there where you know, for example, Notre Dame gets money from both NBC and from the ACC, uh, not a full share. Would that be uh, the kind of thing you could negotiate? And I'm just throwing that out there as one model. Uh, another model might be, uh, if you believe that, uh, you know, by the middle of the, you know, 2020s, you're going to have four 16-team super conferences. And, you know, is there a way to meld, say, the uh, Pac-12 and the Big 12, where you take, you know, Texas and Oklahoma and five or six others, and you take USC and whoever, and, you know, put together a big pack, let's say, a big pack conference, 16 teams, an Eastern division where Texas and Oklahoma would be, you know, the superstars in a Western division where USC and and whoever, I don't know, Oklahoma, I mean, Oregon, uh, Washington, UCLA would be the stars. And it, in that model, the championship game of each of the four 16-team super conferences basically becomes the first playoff game. So you have essentially an eight-team playoff. You know, when the Pac-12 South and the North play, uh, the winner goes on to the four-team, you know, college football playoffs. But if every other conference is a 16-team conference, uh, you know, you go you go that that route. And what kind of renegotiations would you have if uh, if you know you started? You know, instead of having the 12 teams that you have in the Pac-12 now, you had maybe eight or nine of those uh, survive. And maybe Colorado goes to the, you know, the Big 12 eastern part of the of, of the combined conferences or something like that. And, again, these are just off the top of your head and brainstorming and what could you do to make this, you know, work better, which would maybe get USC would – would have a home game every, you know, every so often they'd be playing Texas at home and Oklahoma on the road. And every so often they'd be playing, Oklahoma would get to come into LA and USC would go, you know, to, to Austin or whatever. Keep that kind of series going. Uh, I think the networks are going to start demanding more of those kinds of games. 
they're paying so much money. And you can say, well, you know, whatever game you do in the Southeastern Conference, they're going to sell it out. But that doesn't mean they're necessarily going to keep watching on television to watch, uh, you know, Auburn play, uh, you know, um, I don't know. Uh, like the Citadel. Georgia Southern. Georgia yeah. Southern, yeah, or uh, Wofford or one of those games. I mean, you can say, oh, our season ticket holders don't mind, but the TV viewers do. So I'm thinking TV is going to start paying, playing more of a, a part in all of this and, and pretty much demanding that that teams really give them good games. And at a, somebody like USC is in a, a really good position there if you end up with, um, uh, with kind of melded conferences. And maybe you only have room then for, for two out of conference games or whatever. But, uh, but as long as USC's got Notre Dame, I think they're, in, they're, they're either ahead of the game, uh, you know, in terms of where this is all going to go. But, uh, I don't know that there's enough of that really smart brainstorming happening right now. No. <laughs> but it, it better. Cause things are, Things are changing fast, yeah. And uh, and you better be ready to be ahead of the curve instead of behind it. For Tar- just for Tark, uh, from my point of view, uh, I love the idea. I've always thought that that's something USC should at least explore seriously, look into the possibilities, inquire, and what would happen. You know, the, the Pac-12. You know, you just go along with whatever the Pac-12 says, and you get an equal share to Washington, Oregon, Washington State, and Oregon State, and all that stuff. Um, if they think you're actually going to do something, I think things could change. I, I've not heard of anybody well, that's in the USC point. circles that was even would even contemplate that. No, no, we're happy, blah, blah, blah. But I really think it should be considered. I'm a huge proponent of that. I think it would be awesome. And I think USC is one of the only you know schools, certainly on the West Coast, that could pull that off. And uh, I think it would be great. But, Tarek, I, I wouldn't hold your breath because I just don't see anyone in the, the administration wanting to do something like that, wanting to do that big of a change. You know, and it's just basic negotiating. Uh, for example, USC made the same mistake with the NCAA. They didn't have to sue the NCAA, but if the NCAA didn't know for sure what USC was going to do, if the NCAA, for example, they knew what the hell was in those emails, they knew how many bylaws they broke, they knew how much lying they did, how crooked that whole thing was. If they'd have thought, you know, they probably, but they might. What if they, what if they come after us? What if they get us in court? Which Todd McNair did. What are we going to do then? But they had been assured USC wasn't going to do anything. So what did they do? They're, they basically threw Pat Hayden out of the office in Indianapolis after telling him, oh yeah, we got a deal. And then they said, no, go to, you know, stick it in your hat. We don't care. What are you going to do? They didn't, I mean, they didn't even hold a press conference. Yeah. The least you could do is hold a press conference and say, these son of bitches lied to us. You know, <laughs> they told us they had a, we had a deal. We should have gotten back this, 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 and this. But if you never, and I think your point is really good, Ryan, about if, if, the Pac-12 thinks USC is talking to NBC or talking to somebody about going the Notre Dame route. The Pac-12, when USC calls them up and said, you know what, we got an issue here, they listen much harder. Yes. Much more, 
they pay a lot more attention to you if they know you're looking around or if they know you've called up Texas and Oklahoma and you're trying to see, would we be better off putting something together with these guys? Is there a way to do this? Um, that would, that would get their attention. And, and you just wish there were someone who had kind of that sense of this is what we can do here. This is how, you know, you can't just sit back. It, it, at this time in college sports, if you sit back, you're just going to get run over. Yeah. I mean, this, there's too much changing. And, and, and we really, yeah. And maybe it's, uh, we're going to try. We keep trying to push. And USC's fan base, you know, if, if you keep pushing. I mean, for example, if you're talking to the Pac-12, one of the things you might say is, you know, it really kind of bothers us that we're in the heart, USC, we're in the heart of the telecommunications capital of the whole world. <laughs> the media capital of the whole world. And when the Pac-12 came to locate its new Pac-12 network, they chose to put it in the Embarcadero in San Francisco. No. If you're going to put a TV network together, I mean, where's the NFL network now? L.A. Where's Fox? L.A. Where's the one place ESPN is at least moving to? Uh, L.A. Where's the tennis network? L.A. I mean, they're not here by accident. <laughs> There's a reason they're here. And so... The Pac-12 chose to spend a ton of money, just as much money, you know, to locate in, you know, maybe as uh, expensive an office, you know, rental area in the whole world and redoing buildings so they could have studios. You wouldn't have had to do that in L.A. For example, when ESPN decided or they got involved with the SEC network, where is the, where's their studio? There's, where's their southern studio for the ESPN network? Well, it just happens to be in Charlotte, which is not in the Southeastern Conference footprint. But the ESPN had a studio there. They bought somebody, uh, I don't know if it was Jefferson Pilot or Raycom or one of those teams, one of those, uh, earlier broadcast, uh, operations in, in college sports. But if, you know, when they decided they were going to do that, they didn't say, oh, well, let's go build a new studio in Birmingham for Paul Feinbaum because that's where Paul lives. No. They said, Paul, you're going to Charlotte. <laughs> and Paul went to Charlotte. So, I mean, here, the guy who is Mr. SEC, who broadcasts SEC Network, SEC Network, doesn't even live or broadcast in an SEC state anymore. Because ESPN said, we're not wasting that money. Pac-12 said, eh, we'll waste, we'll waste the money, who cares? And of course, the schools and the Pac-12 get by far the, you know, least money of any of the, of, of any of the major conference networks. Because people are allowed to make decisions like that. And USC probably ought to say, we object. We don't like that. We'd like a little more money. And we'd also like you to come and put your studios in L.A. 
where there's so many more uh, studio facilities, so many more uh, professionals, uh, you know, available to be hired, so much more, you know, you may not have the, you know, where the Pac-12 people from Walnut Creek can come look over your shoulder. But, uh, I mean, those are just little things I think you'd like to see USC exert itself and say, hey, we're USC. All right. Uh, well, I guess we'll get back to SC Maid's question. Man, we're getting, uh, we're getting kind of, uh, all over the place here. So let's, uh, we'll, well, we still got more questions. So we'll jump in a couple of, these are kind of off topic ones about other sports, sports other than football at USC. So we'll finish SC Maid's. He said, has Dan ever heard of USC considering to roll out a wrestling program? Youth wrestling continues to grow in the U.S. exponentially. College is a hot, I mean, California is a hotbed for wrestling talent. It disappoints me to see that only Stanford and ASU have moved forward with this sport. They're both top 20 programs. Thanks so much for the time and fight on, uh, to you and your team, Ryan. SC made. You know, SC made, uh, it just, I just think the difficulty of working out a schedule really makes it tough. Uh, it's, uh, of all the sports, I think wrestling has is, is got to have the hardest road to, to go. Uh, it just doesn't fit the profile of the West Coast. Um, and, you know, I mean, I'll be, be honest with you. If USC brings in two, two more sports, uh, you think it has to be women's softball and men's soccer. It just, uh, I mean, with that new soccer stadium, heck, I'm, I'm trying to figure out can that new soccer stadium accommodate a women's softball field? I would think uh, a full-size regulation uh, soccer field in a 22,000-seat stadium could definitely accommodate. I mean, if, if the Coliseum could accommodate Major League Baseball, I would think you know that new soccer uh, you know football club of LA uh, stadium that's being built right next to the Coliseum could absolutely accommodate, uh, you know, a women's softball program. And, uh, to me, USC could, could be challenging for a national championship in, you know, four years if they, uh, if they started women's softball. So, so I'd be, you know, I, I'd really like to see them do that. And, and I think men, men's soccer makes the most, most sense. Wrestling is just hard. It's just, it's a hard sport. And, and not having a lot of natural, um, uh, you know, uh, opponents that you could play, not having a conference that, that, that makes a lot of sense, you know, having a lot of travel. Uh, what you told me, I didn't know that. I didn't realize that, that, that wrestling is, uh, is becoming, you know, popular, you know, at the high school level or at the club level in California. That's something I didn't know. Um, I, I would not have guessed that. Uh, you know, I would, I'd almost rather see one other sport that I wish they did a better job with. I just saw the, the rowing coach, uh, has just re- resigned, but, um, that's always a sport I would have, I would have liked and thought USC could, could, could be nationally competitive if they, uh, they really went after it, uh, in the right way, but, Man, wrestling's a hard way to go. I, I, I would be shocked if if they ever considered wrestling. Really shocked. Yeah, I would be too. It's just really with any men's sport at this point, it's it's almost impossible. 
Uh, Paul in Vegas, what you know, you talked about women's softball. He meant, he wanted to know about that. He said, not having room for a softball field leads me to this query. Can the administration request eminent domain for properties around the central campus to provide, provide room to grow for different needs? When I went there over 40 years ago, it was nothing but slums around campus. The school should have been buying cheap land back then. What does it look like today for campus expansion? Thanks, Paul in Vegas. Paul, one of the things you understand is USC has been buying up those places and owns a whole lot of them. Whether they're ready to, you know, bite the bullet and, and all of that, I don't know. Uh, I would wonder, for example, if USC's women's soccer team could move to the new soccer stadium. If somebody had posted this on the board, the question just recently, could you turn McAllister Field into uh, a, a softball stadium? Uh, I do think they've got to come up with some solution uh, you know, for that, but, uh, uh, you would think USC's women's soccer would move into that, um, into the news. You would think, gosh, I, I never like to say this, but one would hope that USC in, uh, negotiating the deal to allow the, uh, you know, that property be, you know, built to have the new soccer stadium that's, you know, under construction as we talk, um, to have that, uh, you know, go up there instead of a, you know, a nice, uh, parking garage for home football games, um, that, uh, uh, that they would have gotten, uh, permission, uh, from the football club of LA, uh, to, uh, play their, you know, women's soccer games there. Uh, and if that's the case, would that free up McAllister Field? Don't know for sure, but, uh, I, I again, you would like to see some nimble, uh, outside the box thinking, uh, in the USC athletic department and keep, uh, keep thinking those thoughts and, and, and we'll keep trying to come up with, uh, with ideas about it. Cause I do think, you know, I think they made a pretty smart decision with the lacrosse. Uh, I mean, you know, they went down and, you know, here they are. What is it? Their third or fourth year and went down and beat number two. Florida in the NCAA tournament. Now they got to go across the country again next week and, and this weekend and beat, uh, you know, Boston College. I don't know how lacrosse works. USC's clearly a, got a better record than Boston College. Why they had to go east, uh, a couple of times. It's a sport that is an eastern, you know, co- east coast sport. And, uh, USC, I think, made that decision because they wanted to, to reach out to the east coast and, and it was a, as much a, you know, student recruiting kind of a deal as anything. I, mean, I, I still would have gone with uh, softball first. But, uh, you know, if they can, you know, get it right, uh, and I don't know if they can play those their games. I know they played some at the Coliseum. I don't know if they can play on that, uh, on that soccer field, which would be just a much more, you know, sensible place to, um, you know, 22,000 seat stadium. Obviously you don't need anywhere near that, but it's just a much more, you know, you go play a women's lacrosse game in the Coliseum and it just gets completely lost. Um, so, so anyway, uh, but that's a good thought. Yeah. You know, where we're going with, with some of these sports. Eric in duck country wrote in, he said with ESPN floundering, 
Where do you and Dan see the future of college football broadcasting going? Uh, have you seen it? Have you heard anything from CBS Sports? Uh, cable companies are dragging ESPN down, but ESPN is the product that is preventing so many more customers from cutting the cord. I don't know why they haven't switched to a la carte programming yet. I would think Time Warner and Comcast, et cetera, would rather make less money per subscriber than lose the customer altogether. Will ESPN develop a purely online network like Hulu or Netflix? They could make a killing. I always assume there are people far smarter than I working on this problem, but now I wonder. Thanks as always, Eric and Duck Country. Well, I think it's just so hard when you're getting, what was it, an average $7 a month or something like that that's like more than the next, you know, 40 cable channels uh, that ESPN was able to do, uh, you know, and force people who didn't want to buy, you know, uh, ESPN or didn't care about sports, they still had to pay for it. And uh, people were cutting the cord, obviously. And you probably wouldn't have been very well thought of at ESPN two years ago had you even brought that that subject up. So, you know, they didn't get out ahead of it, obviously, and now it's catching them with all the people that are, you know, you know, jumping out of cable. And, you know, with them losing the number of subscribers that, uh, I mean, I think they've probably lost as many subscribers in the last couple of years as um, the Pac-12 network has. Um, so, uh, they're talking about doing all kinds of different things at ESPN that they never talked about before. I wish I understood the nuances of, of how you, again, how you monetize all of those things. And I know that, you know, they say, well, people are, you know, uh, consuming sports on so many different, you know, uh, uh, you know, pieces of equipment, so many different kinds of ways to consume it. Uh, and yet, how exactly do you monetize that? And, you know, is, is broadcasting a game over, you know, on cable that people are watching on their big screen TV the same as somebody watching it on their phone, you know, while they're, uh, you know, waiting for their, their plane or something like that? I, I, I don't know. And it, I don't know that anybody knows exactly where this is going. I mean, I, I just think, I mean, I, I just saw a story that said ESPN is now for the first time going to try to be able to document for advertisers exactly how many people are getting it in how many different ways. So that they're, they're saying that they're going to have an exact scientific way of tracking all the exposure and on all the di- different vehicles that, that it's being exposed on, uh, so that you know, they're going to count the, the people that are watching it in the, you know, in, a, in sports bars or in, in airports or on this device or that device or this, you know, service or that service, whether they can pull that off. Apparently, they're going to present this at some big uh, uh, broadcast advertising, uh, you know, get-together in the near future and that, that they're going to start it by October 1st, I think, where... ESPN is going to be able to tell the advertisers, you know, exactly what kind of exposure they're getting. I mean, I think the the good news for people like USC and what is the the big teams, the big programs, the big games, the big conferences are still going to be extremely valuable. I think the people that are going to be in trouble or say if you're the uh, you know the Mountain West or the uh, American Athletic Conference. I just think, you know, 
in the near future, they're liable to be having to pay somebody, you know, to take their games. I mean, that's the way, you know, I, when I started at, at Xavier as a sports information director, uh, we basically would pay radio stations to take, to be our network. And then we sold, you know, we sold the, uh, all the sponsors. And it was up to us, uh, because the networks would, or the, the, the radio station, for example, would say, okay, we'll, we're fine with you guys, you know, broadcasting your games, but we're not sure we can make enough money from it or, or we can, uh, uh, we just as soon have the income of, uh, uh, of you paying us, you're buying the airtime, and then it's your network and you go out and sell it. And that's what we did. And, uh, that's how you, you know, you gotta, you got started, uh, if you were, you know, a program like, you know, Xavier's was, uh, 25, 30 years ago was really struggling. Uh, now obviously, you know, they're doing, you know, really well. But I think there are going to be some conferences, especially in college football, where they're just not a- attractive enough to earn the kinds of dollars which maybe don't compare at all to the SEC or the Big Ten or the Big or Pac-12, but they were decent, and I think those are going to go away. And I think those those schools may end up having to to buy the who knows buy the time, put their own networks together, and you know do it themselves. I I I just think it is really going to be hard to say like if you're a University of Cincinnati or something like that with a, a pretty decent program and a decent stadium and. All of that, it just, I don't know that you move the dial uh, on national, you know, television. And, uh, whereas I think USC has the potential to always move the dial, you know, like, you know, there are probably 25 of those programs that, uh, that are worth it. And there are a lot of other programs that people are just going to say, well, why should we pay them that kind of money? It's, it just doesn't work. And how that all, you know, works itself out in the next, uh, you know, five to ten years, who who the heck knows? But uh, it's going to be one of the more interesting stories in college sports, uh, for maybe the most interesting one in college sports, because college sports has gotten kind of fat and says, you know, and, and man, if you get any money at all, you spend it. I don't know, Ryan, I probably say this in the war room. The Knoxville News Sentinel just filed a Freedom of Information Act, and they got the numbers for Tennessee played in the Music City Bowl this last year, which is, what, 180 miles from from, uh, Knoxville to Nashville? (laughs) They played uh, Nebraska. And uh, their budget for travel... From Knoxville to Nashville, they spent over a million dollars for <laughs> University of Tennessee football to go play in the Music City Bowl, and they were so excited about their win over Vanderbilt, or no, excuse me, over uh, uh, Nebraska that they bought thirty-seven thousand dollars worth of diamond rings for the players to celebrate their their magnificent uh, Music City Bowl win. But but more than a million dollars. Wow. It was a travel budget to go from Knoxville to Nashville. My wife and I have made that drive in, you know, like three hours with one stop at Sonic. 
It probably cost us 20 right. bucks, so I don't know. If I... <laughs> yeah, so it was a, a million-dollar trip. Uh, so <laughs> schools aren't that good. At, I think they got like a million and something from the SEC, uh, the bowl distribution, and they basically, you know, we got a, we got a million two coming in. Let's spend a million one on, on trailing from Knoxville to Nashville. Uh, so schools, schools aren't that good at, at saving money no. and putting it away for, you know, they, if, if they got it, they spend it. And, uh, uh, so it's not necessarily going to, I mean, uh, like Washington state redid their stadium. Uh, and, uh, then they found out they weren't getting any more money from the Pac-12 networks like they assumed they were going to get. You know, that it's basically, you know, you're getting about a million dollars back and that's it. You're not getting any more. And I think they were kind of put out at Washington State because of the fact that they kind of already spent <laughs> that you know, Pac-12 TV money that really isn't coming. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know. Uh, how this all works out, I don't know, but, uh, you may not, you know, see, uh, schools able to spend the kind of money that they've been spending, uh, at least all the schools. Uh, it just, I just don't think it's going to be there for everybody. We, uh, so the last three emails we got, and we've already gone kind of long, but, um, they're all regarding the, uh, Coliseum stuff and we've, We've had multiple co- podcasts on this, so I'll, I'll read them. Um, it, we'll just get a few comments down. We won't like dwell on these too much. Okay. Um, but I'll do one at a time. First, we have, uh, Troy. He said, sorry to say it, but this Coliseum snafu smells of Pat Hayden. Are we supposed to win? Uh, are we supposed to win the right way, but the fan base is supposed to stay home? I have not. Uh, he said, I've sort of a technical question that Dan might raise with the administration. You know, a donation is supposed to really be a donation. It's something you give without thought of compensation. When Etsy demands a quote-unquote donation as a condition of buying season tickets, it's not really a donation. It's actually just part of the price of the ticket. Uh, there's no uh, donative intent on the part of the alum, so I'm betting the IRS would not recognize it as a, don- as a donation either, meaning as a loyal fan who wants to buy season tickets, I can't even get the tax deduction of the donation I'm making to USC. I think this donation idea, like the whole renovation concept, is just a half-baked scheme hatched in the hazy mind of somebody with an empty glass of Chardonnay in his hand. Uh, or empty, yeah, empty glass of Chardonnay in his hand. Let's call it a donation. Yeah, that'll make him happy. No, Pat, nobody's happy. Fight on, Troy75, uh, JD. And I don't think of Chardonnay. I think it's probably more of like a scotch. I'm guessing more of scotch, but, you know. Yeah. Uh, Troy, I think... Uh... It may be vodka, I don't know. Uh, uh, but I think they've been telling us that they think 80% would be able to be, uh, uh, considered a donation or that, that you can, you know, write off 80% of it with the IRS. I, I don't, you know, I'm so not an expert there. I just know that's, you know, what we've been told. Um, but I do think the whole, issue the more you go into it somebody uh it's obvious no one at usc wants to say yeah that was my idea (laughs) they might say they might say oh 
77,500 capacity, that's fine. We don't draw that much more than that, or we don't average much more than that, or it's not going to be a problem, or there's two NFL teams in town now. We may not be able to sell their tickets anyway or whatever. All of that, you get all those excuses. I mean, I do think if they win out this year, they'll average over 90,000 at home. So, you know, who knows uh, how how long how much longer you can justify that. But uh, 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 we have some ideas as to where this came from in terms of we have a, a sense that USC wanted the easiest way to sell the luxury boxes. And one of the easiest ways to do that was to give them everything you could possibly give them. Uh, the marble staircases, the lobbies big enough to play touch football games, you know, so that took out 9,000 of your best seats or your 9,000 best seats. So what? It'll be easier to, so we'll move the building, uh, right down to row 45, uh, something that I don't think there's another stadium in the world that has, uh, a lug, luxury boxes that they just drop in the middle of the stadium. Nobody does that. Uh, and the, and, and you know, the LA Conservancy kind of says, uh, you know, in terms of historical preservation, well, don't change anything really if, or, or if you do, change it so we can't see it. I did notice that, that we're talking about they're putting in the two new video boards and instead of putting them on the on the rim of the stadium as they do in every other stadium in the history of the world, they're putting them right in the middle of the two end sections. Now those aren't the greatest seats, but actually I think those seats because the section curves a little bit at the very end of the stadium, are better seats than the next section or two down, because uh, you're at least looking at the field. But USC is just going to knock out, I don't know how many hundred seats on each side that are going to get knocked out because of the video board. And I know you only sell them in sellout games, but they're better than nothing. Well, they're, they're going to be nothing now. Because <laughs> uh, I'm guessing the Conservancy people said, Ooh, don't put it where we can see it. And I think it's interesting. Apparently, nobody at the Conservancy noticed the second largest video board in America at the other end of the stadium. And I'm guessing it's because that's at the end, away from the museums, so nobody would ever see that. Because it's not like those people go to the games. So how would they notice? I mean, do you think that, that, that video board at the, at the, you know, closed end of the stadium, is the second largest in the country, and it was put on these big pillars, you know, that are technically, they're outside the stadium. And nobody batted an eye. Nobody, you know, said a word. Um, so they, they seem to have selective uh, criteria for what you can and can't do at the Coliseum. And one, yeah. again, would wish USC might have had a better ability to negotiate their way through this and, and negotiate from a position of strength. It's your Coliseum now. It's actually been your Coliseum. Without USC, there would be no Coliseum. Uh, and USC should act like it. You can go with hat in hand and can we do this? Will you let us do that? No. You're paying for it. You're raising all the money. You're saving it. You do what's best for you. 
not what somebody who, you know, they're nice people. And I hope they, I wish they could have saved the Brown Derby to go back however many years it probably was, you know, and they probably lost a lot of stuff in LA that, that probably shouldn't have been torn down. But, uh, and I hope they have great success, but to have anybody in an outside group like that making any decision with any sort of specificity, as in, for example, they said, well, we don't like the idea of having luxury boxes on both sides of the Coliseum or structures like that. Why? Who cares? Tough. Who cares what you think? <laughs> I mean, really? Tough. That's Who what, cares? That's what everyone else does. Well, you know, it's funny. USC does something that no one else has ever done with the stadium. Like you said, no one in the world's done that. Like it's just usually like if no one else has done it, it's probably a bad idea. Um, well, and the, and same, it, and the Pac-12, the Pac-12 does the same how thing. How historically correct could it be if nobody's ever done it? Yeah. I mean, you're doing something that's just going to look awful. It ain't going to look like the, co- and I know, and, and it was a nice, you know, woman for the, the conservancy said, well, you'll still be able to see three-fourths of the ball, only one, you know, we're only going to cover up one-fourth of it, and you think, one-fourth of it? That's actually really a lot. Yeah. Uh, you know, you basic, you know, and it's like, well, but but just keep the, that out. And it was like the thinking that, oh, that's the outside wall is sacrosanct. And honest to God, when I was somebody at LA, or, uh, you know, a decision-maker at USC told me that, and I said, Why? What about the outside wall should be sacrosanct? It's ugly as hell. It's the worst feature in the Coliseum. Why would you care if, you know, people don't touch the outside wall? The outside wall, if somebody wanted to touch it, it'd be fine with me. It's really ugly. You know, don't screw up the peristyle. Don't screw up the, uh, uh, the wonderful tunnel that's like no place else in the history of the world in sports. And don't screw up the lines, you know, of the of the bowl. Uh, but uh, it's just you just yeah. you almost can't believe it that they ended up where they ended up. Yeah. And now, but you can believe nobody wants to take credit for it. <laughs> it's funny, like the Pac-12 did the same thing with the Pac-12 Network. Let's do it our own way, the way that no one else is doing it. It's really successful when you partner with Fox <laughs> or ESPN. Yeah, those things are great. Let's do it on our own, you know, and we'll we'll. We'll own a $300,000 house instead of sharing the ownership with one other entity of a $3 million house. Like that makes more sense, you know? Um, and USC, let's do, no one's ever done a building like this. Let's do that. Um, yeah. So it's crazy. Okay. So let's, uh, we, we got a couple more I want to okay. get to. Sorry. Uh, Stan said, I've listened to your podcast, uh, and I'm following observations and questions. I've been attending USC football games for over 55 years and I've been a season ticket holder for over 40 years. Long time. Uh, I pretty much agree with the the comments made by Chris of San Pedro that you you read on the podcast. I was not impressed with Pat Hayden as the athletic director. And if he's involved in the Coliseum renovation, well, then there's not much to say. Here's my question. Does SC really care about the quote-unquote average fan? Uh, they will make more money on football from the Pac-12 network contract and losing 16,000 loyal fans may not matter to them. How does the reduced seating actually make for a better home field advantage, uh, will this neglect impact recruiting? Players may want to go elsewhere to play in front of bigger crowds. And how important is it USC to maintain the historical landmark and thus not make any renovations that can be seen from the outside of the structure? How many Division One football programs have renovated their stadiums and reduced the seating capacity by almost 20%? 
So a lot. It's kind of like just asking. I think there are a lot of questions. Yeah, like no, that, I mean, those questions almost answer. Yeah, those questions almost answer themselves. <laughs> However, someone at USC should have asked those questions and answered them. I mean, do you think UCLA, for example, will ever mention that if you come to UCLA and play in the Rose Bowl, you can, you'll play before maybe potentially on a good year if we get lucky. 15,000 more people a game than you will at USC? I mean, you think UCLA maybe won't mention that, you know what, maybe we ought to play the USC-UCLA game at the Rose Bowl every year because every time we go to the Coliseum, we shut 15,000 people out. I mean, uh, and then, you know, I know they say one of the things, whatever, whenever anybody you talk to says uh, about the Coliseum that's trying to promote it, says to give USC a big home field advantage. And you say, you mean a glass wall that goes halfway down the stadium? Honestly, they finally said the desperation, because it's so obvious, there's not going to be a lot of noise or cheering coming out of that glass wall that goes halfway up the stadium. And somebody actually told me from USC, well, maybe the sound from the rest of the stadium will bounce off the glass walls and maybe it'll stay stay in the stadium. Yeah, maybe. Maybe pigs are going to fly over the Coliseum too. I mean, uh, to, 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 but that's how desperate they are, is that maybe the glass will keep the sound in. Yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> that's going to happen. Yeah. Um, all right, we got one last one for American Duck Country. Man, well, this, is, this is one of our longest ones we've ever done, you and me, Dan. Um, sorry. <laughs> we did a later one that usually we're doing like earlier in the day and I was running around doing renovation stuff, uh, for our stupid bathrooms. Well, not stupid, but just, it's taking a long time. Um, that make, every time you say that, it makes me sad just thinking about what you had to go through on that. So. <laughs> I, I built, it was so funny. I was so proud of this. This we're already like way over. I'll, I'll say, um, we're on the, the bathrooms are up on our top floor. There's a, a living room floor like below that and then like the garage below that. So it's really like the third floor. And you don't realize when you destroy a bathroom, like all the tile and everything, it's not just like pieces of tile. Every piece of tile has like an inch and a half of concrete behind it and wire mesh and stuff. I mean, it's just to do a whole Ooh. bathroom or shower, you're talking, I mean, buckets and buckets. I mean, we must have filled like 75 to 100 five gallon buckets full of debris that heavy. And, oh my God. And how do you like, do you walk them up each one individually down the stairs? And the first time we did it, um, we took buckets and we, two different buckets and we would tie ropes to them and we would lower them over the balcony. Like we'd fill them up with debris, walk them over to the balcony, lower it down to the next floor, dump it on a tarp on the balcony and do that till that was, you know, till all was gone. And then we did the same thing That's straight out of about the uh, 14th century. Yes. Uh, and then, and then yeah. uh, it was only, there was three <laughs> of us doing it. So it was like we couldn't have. But then from that floor, we did the same thing, filled the buckets back up one at a time and lowered them one more floor right into the dumpster. And I was like, you know what? This sucks. So I want to rent one of those trash chutes that you, right. you see in construction things. And uh, they were expensive. I couldn't find anywhere to rent them. But I found a handyman online that like made one out of these sono tubes, which are like cardboard tubes that you pour cement in for like columns and things like that. Oh, yeah. So I bought like six of them. They're four feet long each. And then we... We kind of slid them together and taped them up, you know, t- you know, so it's like this 24 foot long 
deal. We tied yeah. it to the top balcony, ran it across the balcony into the dumpster, covered it with like a sheet so dust wouldn't come out. And we just were, so we would just walk over to the balcony and the open end of the tube, dump the, the bucket full of, uh, debris and it would run down. It got stuck one time and I went down there and, and fiddled with it and fixed it and got it done. But we, man, it was awesome. Like I was so proud of like, you know, Jerry rigging this thing together and it was so much easier. It was really cool. Dump, side is notes, the, uh, dump is the key word there, I think. <laughs> uh, it would it would just look like a smoke pipe because you dump and the dust would be coming oh, out God. of there. It was uh, it was crazy. I'm a little sore today <laughs> after doing that. Um, but anyway, all right. So we'll, our last thing. Uh, I don't know why I just went on that tangent, but I was very proud of that. I was very proud. Um, yes. <laughs> so Dan was saying, well, you came up with a better answer than USC has, <laughs> so uh, you should be proud. A little ingenuity. Um, Eric wrote and he said, Dan was saying, it seems no one wants to accept responsibility for the Coliseum renovation. Don't you think Max Nikias or anyone else would become a hero if he stepped forward and said he wasn't going to let the renovation continue, even if it was at fault, even if he was at fault? It seems like no one would care who's responsible if they decided not to go through with it. It would ultimately, ultimately be great publicity. Do you think the negative press from outlets such as ESPN or Fox would influence anyone? That might, uh, be who we need to contact. Thanks as always, Eric from Duck Country. Eric, you read my mind. Uh, it's amazing. You even used the exact word that I have used in some of my conversations with people at USC, uh, to wit, don't you want to be a hero? Whoever stops this and gets it right and makes it happen in ways in which it makes so much sense, uh, where you don't cut the capacity, where you do a better job of putting in, you know, you're going to have to give up something. Maybe you give up the marble staircases and the, op- the big lobbies and all of that kind of thing. But other than that, you can do a better building for less money. You can have money to put in some field suites and to finish the end zone and to maybe put in a standing room plaza in front of the peristyle so that for the really big games you can ha- handle an overflow 10,000 more the way they can do it at AT&T and, uh, you know, at the Cowboys Stadium or the way they're going to be able to do it at the new Rams Stadium. Uh, you could do a better job uh, and not – I mean, there is a way to actually do this without tearing out any of those seats. And you wouldn't have to make those 10,000 phone calls. And you wouldn't have to reseat anybody. Uh, and you would have the ability to turn those seats that are going to be torn out now into club seats. And you wouldn't have to spend all the money. The worst part of this new design, when you look at it, are, is the area that they're devoting to club seats. They already have what you can turn into club seats. And you don't have to do anything other than put in club seats and put in maybe, you know, into, you know, uh, bars and concession areas and, and, and wall it off a little bit and maybe even put in an elevator farm. But those seats are already there. You don't need to do that. And they're expandable all the way up to 9,000. You've got more of them. And when you look at what they're doing now, they have one whole level that's like 24 loads boxes. They call them boxes. They're basically four seats around a little table. So it's like one whole level 
is like seating for like 96 people. Like, what? This is crazy. Uh, and it's just, so we, you, you try to convince enough people that you do have time to stop this, and there are better ways to do this, better ways in every way, better for the construction, better for not tearing up the state, you know, the Coliseum uh, for next year, uh, you know, just as good, you know, for the big donors. And the founders, sweet people that are donated, you know, basically $7.5 million to $10 million apiece for their 24, you know, person boxes, they should get everything that's been committed to them. They should get, you know, the same dimensions and the same amenities uh, for each of the individual boxes. Uh, but, you know, you don't have to waste all that, you know, area and all that construction cost uh, and all the the hassle of reseeding people for 2018 and then reseeding the whole stadium for 2019. Yeah. That's crazy. The whole stadium. Like, having, you can't have to reseat the entire stadium. Like, that just makes no sense. Yeah, and that's what they're going to have to do because they're going to change the number of seats and aisles and rows and that. So they're not doing that for next year. So for 2018, they have to reseat everybody because the 9,000 people who are having, who are losing their seats, they got to be moved out into the stadium. So they're going to get first preference over everybody else as they should, but then everybody else has to be moved. And then you've got, uh, they got to re-reseat them for 2019. That's insane. Basically, if you, if you didn't take up those 9,000 seats, and put a big building, plop it right down there. <laughs> if you put in a second deck above it, or you put in a building that would go above the rim, who cares? Everybody else in the country puts their luxury suites above the rim. Uh, you'd be able to, you know, save those seats. You wouldn't have to make one phone call. You wouldn't have to relocate one person. And, and I would turn in, turn those 9,000 seats into primarily club boxes and then you would offer them to people at more money and, and USC needs to raise more money. There's no question about it. I mean, they went a half century without doing almost any maintenance on the Coliseum. What did they think was going to happen? You know, what did anybody, you know, it wasn't their fault necessarily because of the Coliseum commission and the politics of that. Uh, but, uh, uh, so, you know, there's going to, you know, be a, a required, you know, was $270 million enough? I don't know. But if you could figure out a way to do this more efficiently with less impact on your seat hold, you know, ticket holders, I would think you have to go that route. And if that means you've got to call the you know, L.A. Conservancy up and say, look, here's what we're going to do. We hope you like it, you know, uh, and thank you very much. And then we'll go talk to the National Park Service about keeping our National uh, Historic Landmark uh, status. But if push came to shove, I would take care of my fan base and my football program before I would take care of the historical preservation people. It would be that simple. Uh, it would be if I got to, you know, uh, favor one group or the other, I'm favoring my guys. And, um, and they're not going to do anything that just totally, I mean, it's not going to be a soldier field. They're not going to completely disregard 
you know, what, you know, what the Coliseum looks like or what it's, what kind of a, you know, place it's been for all history. I mean, I'll be honest, what they're doing now does more damage to the historical, you know, preservation of the Coliseum than anything else that, that we've suggested that they do. And it's just a matter of people don't know what they're talking about. Uh, you know, when they try to convince you that, oh, this is a, you know, this is a good way to go. No, it's not. It's a terrible way. It's a really stupid way to go. And it's going to cost you fans and it's going to cost you, well, it's going to cost you so many things that it really doesn't need to, you know, to, to cost USC if they would have only, you know, had somebody in those meetings that A, knew what the hell you know, what college football is all about and what, what direction it's going, and B, represented USC's fan base. I don't think there was anybody in any of those meetings arguing for USC football fans. You know, you had people arguing for the, you know, the luxury boxes. I mean, first of all, if somebody came to the first meeting, and this is, I've said this so many times, if you come to the first meeting and I'm in charge and you say, well, here's what we're going to do, we're going to take out 9,000 seats, 9,500 seats, the, the, the number changes, and we're going to replace them with 2,200. And, yeah, those are the 9,500 best seats in the Coliseum, but, and you'd say, stop right there. We're not doing that. That's a bad solution. That's not a solution at all. That's more trouble than it's worth. It doesn't answer what we need to have done here. I mean, that, it should have stopped right there. It should have never been allowed to go any further once they said we're going to take away all those seats. I mean, let's face it. Coliseum only has 38,000 sideline seats. It's a classic oval with more seats in the end zone. It was built to be, a you know, a, an Olympic stadium with a big track and, you know, for spectacles and all that kind of stuff. So it wasn't built to be a football stadium. So... Of all the stadiums in the country, the Coliseum is the least suited to losing any sideline seats, much less 25% of their sideline seats. You just can't do that. And nobody apparently was able to make that point. And now I know it's probably going to be hard to admit where they are now, but I think it's the only right thing to do. Well, then <laughs> we got a nice hour-and-a-half podcast in midweek, off-season. You know, but people are passionate. They want to know what's going on. You're passionate about covering it, so we, we do appreciate all the insight. Well, I'm passionate about the Coliseum. Yeah. I think the Coliseum really matters. I, I do think it's the most important uh, sports venue in the history of the world, and I think it, it really can't be screwed up. It, it just can't. It's too important for USC. I mean, they've done such a great job uh, as part of the Figaro Corridor and, and on the campus, it's just, they don't make any mistakes. And you hate to see them make the kind of mistakes they're making with the Coliseum. Cause that may be the most single, uh, you know, widely, uh, disseminated image of USC is the Coliseum. I just think they, they owe it to themselves to get it right. They owe it to the, you know, everybody else to get it right too. All right. Well, Dan, great stuff. Okay. Uh, for all those who are still listening, we appreciate it. I know it's an hour and a half is a lot, but you can break it up. You can listen to different parts. So, um, great stuff. Well, maybe we should offer them a little prize that anybody listens to the end. <laughs> we should throw in there, you know, some special little, uh, you know, 
a question that if they answer it and send it back in, maybe we could uh, offer them a prize. Send them something nice, yeah. Yeah. Uh, we do send our next appreciation. Time. Yeah, next time we'll figure that. All right, well, that's Dan Weber. Uh, I'm Ryan Abraham. We're from uscfootball.com. Hope you guys enjoyed the show, and we will talk to you next time. You've been listening to the Peristyle Podcast, presented by uscfootball.com. Be sure to tune in next week for the latest news on Trojan football and recruiting. Don't forget, you can automatically download the podcast directly to your smartphone or tablet for free. Just click the iTunes link on peristylepodcast.com or search for Peristyle Podcast at the iTunes Music Store.